0: Welcome to What the F is Going On in Latin America and the Caribbean, a popular resistance broadcast in partnership with Black Alliance for Peace, Haiti America's team. Code Pink, Council on Hemispheric Affairs, Common Frontiers, Friends of Latin America, Interreligious Task Force on Central America, Massachusetts Peace Action, and Task Force on the Americas. We broadcast every Thursday, 7.30 p.m. Eastern, right here on YouTube Live. In, on, simultaneously on three YouTube channels, excuse me, Code Pink, Common Front, uh, Convo Couch, and uh, and Popular Resistance. Uh, post-broadcast uh, recordings can be found at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So everyone, today I'm, I'm really happy to have um, a, a personal friend and wonderful journalist uh, from Venezuela join us. Uh, Ricardo Vaz. He is a political analyst and editor at Venezuela Analysis. He is going to be joining us live from Caracas uh, for this episode. And before I have him join the conversation, um, let me give all of you a bit of background as to uh, what we're going to be talking about uh, in this episode. So here we go. Uh, And I I will also add, I guess I should just tell you what I'm going to share with you is actually um, from an article published um, in Venezuela Analysis this week, and I will um, be sure to have that link in the program notes for all of you. So here's a bit of background. Venezuela president, Nicolas Maduro, traveled to Brazil as part of an official visit to meet with his counterpart, Lula da Silva, where the pair discussed regional and international cooperation, including the potential entry of Venezuela into the BRICS block. This is the financial block of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. The high-level meeting comes as part of joint efforts to strengthen their bilateral ties following the restoration of diplomatic and economic relations after years of tension under Lula's predecessor, Jair Bolsonaro, who embraced Washington's regime change plots against Maduro and backed the so-called interim government of opposition figure Juan Guaido. Monday's bilateral, meeting also focused on reactivating trade between the two countries, which fell precipitously after Bolsonaro's recognition of Guaido, severely impacting populations on both sides of the Venezuela-Brazil border. The pair also discussed efforts to advance regional integration. Regional integration, as the audience knows, is a recurring theme throughout Latin America and the Caribbean in the last several years. So welcome, Ricardo. Wonderful to have you with us. Finally, as you said before we went live, Terry, we were wondering when Venezuela analysis were going to come on the show. <laughs> so, so, here you are, and I'm so thankful you had time to join us. And and just to, uh, again for the audience, Ricardo's driving, uh, joining us live from Caracas for this episode. So we're really pleased to to have you with us. So, so maybe hi, we hi,
1: should, It's great. We
0: should start. Um, with the historical context of this meeting, give the audience a bit of background as to why Monday's meeting was so incredibly exciting and significant, not just for Brazil and Venezuela, but for the region as a whole and perhaps the global South as a whole.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first of all, thanks for the invitation. We we are big fans of of the podcast and we're thrilled to finally be here. We hope- (laughs) We're big fans of Venezuela. And, and also great great to see, I mean, we're used to seeing each other in, in characters. I think this is the first time we do, yeah, uh, we do a is, webinar like this.
0: Yeah, it's true.
1: It's great. So so to give a bit of, uh, let's say, near past context and then distant past context, um, it's very tempting to, to say that this is the end of uh, the, the plan to isolate Venezuela. We might have declared it a few times in the recent past, but I mean, mm-hmm. j- just to make a quick recap, Venezuela was turned into a bit of a pariah state by these efforts mm-hmm. led by by the United States, of course. They weren't nearly, uh, they, they weren't ever close to, to reaching its goal, which was to ultimately oust the Maduro government, but it actually did succeed in, in kind of isolating Venezuela in the, in the international arena. Uh, mm-hmm. Venezuela wasn't exactly, I mean, the Maduro government wasn't exactly replaced by this, you know, make-believe, uh, by the quote-unquote interim government because, you know, in multilateral forums, they they weren't just going to allow for this kind of circus. I mean, I think the OAS was the only exception. But then gradually, as this uh, interim government uh, became more and more of a farce, more countries uh, started to realize that, you know, there was no reason to continue playing along.
0: And so step by step,
1: there's a kind of diplomatic re-entry of of Venezuela in, in the global arena. So when we're talking about Maduro trips abroad there, I, I wrote them down, so I don't remember. So so I don't forget. The first one was in September, 2021. And this was very controversial controversial for the corporate media because Maduro went to this CELAC summit in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And Maduro actually welcomes this kind of confrontation. I remember that the presidents of uh, Uruguay and Paraguay thought this was their chance to kind of, you know, please their- Oh, and they uh, did. People.
0: They were very the global overt, like across the table. <laughs> like just and, because we're and, in uh, this room together doesn't mean we support you. <laughs>
1: and, and Maduro said, "You know, I mean, if you want to, if you want to debate, just set the time and place. I, I'm welcome to do it." So he was really spreading, spreading his uh, diplomatic wings. Of course, Maduro, we should remember, was Chavez's foreign minister for a long time. Mm-hmm. So he's no, no foreigner, quote unquote, to these to these kinds of settings. You then know what? Uh, go ahead. It's
0: great that you reiterate to all of us that maduro was chavez's foreign minister because in the united states we he, he is consistently referred to as a bus driver which he was a labor organizer but it's rarely if ever mentioned that he served as foreign minister which is significant it's a significant omission and it's, it's a significant you know part of his resume
1: yeah, it's, it's significant and it, it's not innocent, right? I mean, it's part of the picture that uh, uh, yes. these authors want to paint about Maduro. So then the, the next uh, significant step, I would say, mid last year, you'll remember very well, there was this, um, let's say, less than successful summit of the Americas in Los mm-hmm. Angeles where there was this whole... Uh, controversy of whether Cuba and Venezuela and Nicaragua were going to be invited or not. In the end, Biden just stuck to this hardline position, and it led to the summit being boycotted by a lot of other regional leaders, including, um, you know, perhaps the highest profile was Mexico's AMLO, yeah. who who didn't show up. So simultaneously with the summit of the Americas, Maduro went on on a tour that had stops in uh, Algeria, Iran, Turkey, uh, Gulf countries, and. This was his way of showing that you know maybe Biden will not invite him, but that does not mean that uh, you know I'm not recognized in in other places. And here we're talking about countries that have significant significance when we're talking about uh, global energy markets and 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 all that. Then a few months later, Maduro went to COP27, the summit in Egypt, which isn't the most. Uh, I mean, I'm going to be a bit politically incorrect. I mean, like most United Nations. Initiative. It's not the most useful thing in the world, but for Maduro, it was because uh, it actually showed him on, his, on this first global stage. And there was, you remember, this highly choreographed handshake with uh, Emmanuel Macron of France in the hallway. And this was perhaps the first time where he was face to face with an European leader who had publicly hosted Guaido in the past. So it was kind of, uh, let's say, uh, an elegant way. For Macron to kind of resume <laughs> normal diplomacy yeah. and abandon the, the previous fantasy, then there was kind of uh, be- between then and now, the most significant development was Petro's election in Brazil, in uh, Colombia. Sorry. Colombia and yeah. and he was uh, very swift in re-establishing uh, diplomatic relations with Venezuela and reopening the border in returning. Monomerous, which is uh, an agrochemical producer that had been seized by the Colombian government was returned to the Venezuelan state. And then it came to Caracas, if I'm not mistaken, in in November last year. And then finally, we got to this point uh, just a uh, a few days ago when Maduro visited Brasilia and he was hosted by by Lula da Silva. It's pretty significant that uh, Maduro met with Lula on Monday. And then on Tuesday, there was a summit of of South American presidents, which we'll also touch on, which is very interesting. We just actually, a few hours ago, published a piece on that on, on venezuela analysis. but actually maduro was the only one who was hosted uh, one by one one-on-one uh, on one by lula the day before so this was this kind of uh sealing the re-establishment of diplomatic relations between maduro maduro and lula between brazil and venezuela they had been broken as you mentioned in the intro under the bolsonaro government who decided for you know, we know we know why and decided to to back this kind of interim government. So this has been kind of a, a slow and steady road that has led Venezuela back into uh, international affairs. I wouldn't say it depends on what we mean by isolationism. Uh, so the isolation the isolationism is over in the sense of there being governments that somehow. Assume that Maduro is not the president, the legitimate right. president of Venezuela. So that that conversation is is over. I mean, let, let's yeah. not waste Definitely. any more time on that. But if we're talking about, we have to
0: tell Spain that. But
1: <laughs> actually, actually, not not, not even Spain. Uh, just a, 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 two or three weeks ago, Venezuela uh, announced a new ambassador in Spain, and, and she was uh, she handed her credentials to the Spanish government. It wasn't highly publicized because, of course, it's no. a bit of an embarrassment. But even Spain, even Uruguay, who just now uh, decided again to take take the, take the microphone and, and criticize Lula for, for hosting Maduro, they've also sent a new ambassador to Venezuela. So whether it's public or wow. uh, kept hush-hush, uh, basically the, the, the jig is up. So in terms of, wow. of um, international, international relations, the, there's really nothing more to talk about. But there's still a nice relation when we talk about... Uh, sanctions, right? And, and Venezuela's yeah. ability to develop international trade or get foreign investment, which is uh, very significant, right? I mean, it's not just a matter of recognition. And I guess we can talk about that in more detail. But to your point, what you mentioned in the beginning, the historical background, Yeah. Uh, Chavez, uh, I mean, he had many virtues, but one of them was really pushing for uh, regional integration. And this is highly connected to his uh, idea that this was a, a Bolivarian revolution and inheriting what had been the independence struggle led by Bolivar. And Bolivar was perhaps uh, ahead of his time envisioning a united continent that would uh, be stronger to face what at the time was, wasn't uh, as big a threat as it is now, but you know, this, this empire, in the United States, that, that uh, wasn't so consolidated at the time, but it, it already had some early signs. And actually, just just but Simon today,
0: Bolivar saw it coming. He saw the westward expansion and the potential threat.
1: Yes, he has this uh, very ominous quote that uh, the United States is destined to plague Latin America in the name of liberty. Just just a few hours ago, there was the the first seminar of a series organized by uh, Aldo Movimientos and a number of other collectives as a as a, uh, a campaign that's called Bolivarianism against Monroism. And oh, they, I'll they put that
0: a... link in the notes. Yeah. Because yeah.
1: so, we uh... touched
0: on that. We did an episode, the audience may remember, we did an episode mid-April, actually with Carlos Ron from the Simon Bolivar Institute about the Monroe Doctrine. And we did specifically talk briefly about Monroeism versus Bolivarism, but a full seminar on that, would it would be really fabulous.
1: Yeah, so so, so Chávez uh, saw that, you know, given the recent history when he was elected, I mean, this uh, second half of the century where Latin America was plagued by military dictatorships and coups mm-hmm. and, and then neo- neoliberalism, and uh, no single country could really face the imperialism on its own. I mean, we had the example of, of Cuba that had resisted against this mighty empire right next door, but to a great cost. And so regional unity would actually present a, a greater platform to resist uh, imperialist meddling and then to boost a kind of sovereign development. And this had a number of, of different initiatives. Um, each of them had a different perspective and its own merits. We can talk about CILAC, which is more of a, let's say, mm-hmm. diplomatic Forum. There's there was ALBA, which was created as a, an immediate response to the the ALCA, Free Trade Agreement of the Americas, that was soundly rejected to George Bush's face in Argentina. There was Petrocaribe, which is, uh, I mean, in my opinion, at least a really wonderful um, initiative here in the Caribbean to really help these small uh, island nations break away from the, their dependence on the United States. So this provided. Uh, oil and fuel in very favorable conditions uh, sometimes in barter agreements and it it was I mean it's one of the reasons why Chavez is so beloved in the Caribbean and especially in countries like like Haiti and then uh, I left uh, uh, UNASUR for last Mm -hmm. because UNASUR is perhaps the most broad-reaching initiative of them all in fact I would actually recommend last year in, in November uh, you know, after, after Lula came to power and it was clear that there was really a new push for, for integration uh, in the works. Uh, Guillaume Long, he was uh, Correios Foreign Minister in, in Ecuador, he wrote a, uh, a paper on on SEPR, the Center for Economic and Policy Research, arguing that uh, relaunching UNASUR is really uh, an important step for for the region. So, I would recommend that people. I I can send you the link if you want to put it in in, in the description. And there was a letter written by uh, several former presidents and former foreign ministers, really arguing for taking taking up this this, uh, initiative that was created in 2008. And there was a charter signed in 2011. And it it was the one that had the broader reach in terms of uh, economic, trade agreements, security diplomacy, of course, but it also had some mechanisms that led to it becoming neutralized and then progressively dismantled. I mean, the decision-taking mechanisms were always by consensus. So as soon as this right-wing government starts to take power in the region, they just threw a you know spanner in the works and neutralized UNASUR and then gradually even... Uh, withdrew from, from UNASUR. Yeah. So now we're and actually... The building seeing, in
0: Quito has actually been sold, has it not? The headquarters. Yeah, this,
1: this was very uh, a very disgraceful step by uh, the infamous Lenin Moreno, who mm-hmm. got rid of the beautiful UNASUR headquarters in, in Quito. But but step by step, we saw first uh, Argentina and Brazil almost simul- simultaneously declare their desire to, or their decision to rejoin UNASUR and and just a couple of days ago, Gustavo Petro said the same from Colombia. He also suggested changing the name. I, I didn't really get why he needed to make such a suggestion, but I guess it, it, it's within, within his rights. So after uh, Lula met with Maduro, just, just to finish, and, I, and I'll hand the word back to you, there was a summit of this president in, in Brasilia. And what I liked about it is that it wasn't just this kind of open-ended uh statements that we see all the time when there's when there are these international meetings. So Lula was very uh, was very clear and said, you know, we need a new roadmap for integration in the next uh, 120 days, so four months. Yeah. And this actually suggests that something is already in the works and it's going to be brought forward by the the, the different countries, foreign ministers, and hopefully in, in the near future, we'll see what it's all about. But I I would actually uh, highlight a couple of things that uh, Lula and the other president said in terms of, uh, you know, putting integration above ideological differences. Mm -hmm. I think this is quite interesting because, I mean, we all have our political leanings. Uh, Some are more socialist and some are less socialist. But uh, even for governments in the center-right, as long as they are not just, you know, playing U.S. surrogates, they will recognize that it's in their benefit to have strong regional ties. So creating uh, trade mechanisms, for example, that are not so easily dismantled is to everyone's benefit. So I guess one of the triumphs of this meeting was actually getting everyone on the same page to do so. And then something that uh, people really like because of its implications uh, and something that Lula has harped on very consistently uh, Maduro as well, and others, is uh, having a different currency mechanism. We, we're not mm-hmm. really sure what it would look like for regional trade to kind of uh, take away from the hegemony of the U.S. dollar. And when we're talking about why sanctions are so hurtful and so deadly, it's precisely because countries are dependent on the U.S. dollar. Yeah, it's
0: been weaponized. The U.S. dollar has been weaponized and that, you know, when the I think most of the audience knows this, but once you're locked out of trading in or changing your domestic currency into US dollars to change globally, to trade globally, there's not much that you can do. And you're also also shut out of the SWIFT banking system, which is the overnight exchange system. It's how banks move money around at the close of business. And so those two things alone, and then I mean, and and then it just gets more and more strict and more and more expansive, the sanctions regime, but but the dollar, as the global currency, as the dominant global currency, has been turned into a, a, a weapon of warfare, and yeah, uh, the Cubans know that more than anyone. The Iranians, Venezuela, Nicaragua, now too, and about thirty other countries on the planet.
1: Yeah, indeed. I mean, uh, when we talk when we talk about the sanctions, I'll, I'll focus on Venezuela, which is the case I'm more I'm more familiar with. When we talk about the how the sanctions have worked, they have worked on, on different levels, but one of them is what what you were just saying, you know, uh, blocking the country from accessing this uh, usual uh, hegemonic trade mechanisms, the, the Swiss system and so on. And so then it becomes a nightmare to do even the simplest thing. So, you know, let's say the Ministry of, the Ministry of Health wants to import vaccines. And if, even if it has the money, then it, it's a problem. It has to triangulate with some other bank. This bank may just decide that doesn't want the risk and uh, you know freeze the payment for three months and then Venezuela doesn't get the vaccines doesn't get the money back. It actually happened. I'm not making this up. Yes, it, it happened with the COVID nineteen. We've talked about vaccine. this on this program it with Ivan
0: Hugh actually when he was in Europe <laughs> before he became foreign minister. <laughs>
1: well, he, he knew that yeah. was up. It also happened with the yeah. uh, insulin uh, shipments and all, all sorts of things, food shipments uh, as well. So it makes this kind of uh, Current, uh, you know, daily trading activity is much, much more difficult. And then once you impose uh, primary sanctions directly, so saying, you know, every U.S. agent who deals with a Venezuela state oil company or any other uh, state entity will be uh, face will face punishment. Will, will have its assets freeze frozen mm-hmm. in in the U.S. It becomes a problem because many, uh, trade has become so globalized. That it's very uncommon for, you know, big companies to not have interests here or there. So even if they don't, there there are then secondary sanctions. So for a while, I hope I hope it's not too big a detour. But for a while, after sanctions were imposed, Venezuela was trading its oil via Rosneft. So it would sell its Mm cargoes to Rosneft at a discount, of course, and then which is the Russian oil company? Yes, uh, partly owned by the Russian state. And then Rosneft would resell them, would resell the cargoes on the global market. And then the US Treasury Department imposed secondary sanctions against Rosneft, which had to pull out, and it became much more difficult. So it forces the Venezuelan state to find this network of uh, private intermediaries. This, this, of course, creates avenues for, I'm not just saying, but it creates avenues for, for corruption. We just recently saw a corruption scandal uh, unveiled in, in the oil industry. So it hurts the it hurts Venezuela in a, in a myriad of ways, and so having different well, oh, it just uh, makes
0: trade so much more expensive.
1: Precisely, just, it, it just it, it, the ex- added
0: expense alone.
1: Exactly. So you know, Venezuela, if you want, if you wants to sell uh, an oil cargo to to China, uh, you know, the, here are two non-US agents, and and you have all these mechanisms that stop them from trading directly with each other. So Venezuela has to sell to an intermediary that has to do a ship-to-ship transfer, relabel the oil in Malaysia, and then it finally gets to China. So a barrel that would be sold for know, $100, Venezuela ends up getting $40 on the barrel or even having to do some kind of barter agreement that uh, will yield even less because, I mean, you might uh, get the, the money for the oil, but then you, can, you cannot use it to import food. So you, you might as well do it directly, it's, a, it's it's kind of a straitjacket on, on the Venezuelan economy that has left very little room for maneuver to for the, for the Maduro government, you know, it's not to say that uh, I, I'm not justifying everything that is done, but, but this is the reality, this is the, the scenario in which it has to operate. So having alternative trade mechanisms, uh, trading ecosystems will be, be to the benefit of not just of, of uh, sanctioned countries and, and even pri- even private companies in, in, in sanctioned countries, yeah, but also exactly. to other countries so that they can operate without this looming threat that, that they are going to be target for dealing with someone who, who has been blacklisted.
0: I mean, the US has basically committed, what, what it was trying to solve, it's actually done the inverse, it's forcing people, Latin America specifically, to find an alternative to the US banking system, to the US dollar. And so with this meeting, these two meetings, Monday and Tuesday, I mean, earlier in the year, there was a meeting between Argentina and Brazil and they had talked about creating their own uh, currency to trade with each other. So is this an expansion of that conversation to find a, to create a regional currency or in addition to?
1: Yeah, I think it's more, more like they are parallel plans so I don't think it makes mm-hmm. sense for Brazil and Argentina to wait for a kind of continental uh, yeah. setup before setting up their own because they trade a lot with each other and yeah. Arge- Argentina has uh, let's say its own fair its own fair share of economic difficulties and there's a big strain on its uh, foreign reserves. They have the weight of this disastrous loan from the IMF. So the that the prior uh,
0: president took
1: <laughs> yes t- talk about leaving a, a yeah. an un- unhelpful present. For, for the Fernandez government and the Fernandes government has not really found a way to deal with it. So, you know, having a way to deal with, with Brazil, uh, which I guess, I'm guessing it's, if not the largest one of its largest trading partners in a way that does not put a strain on, on its foreign reserves will be to to Argentina's benefit. So I expect that to actually move uh, more quickly than something. I mean, of course, then once you have that infrastructure, you can try to expand it.
0: Exactly, to, to yeah, and it'd be like the prototype.
1: Exactly, like a, you, have, you have a model that, that you can then expand. There was there was another meeting, uh, I think, shortly after that Brazil Argentina meeting, which was between Brazil and China, and they also floated the possibility of trading, not necessarily in a in a in a new currency, but in their own currency. So that kind, mm-hmm. it probably means exchanging some, some part of their their uh, respective foreign reserves, and then trade directly in Chinese yuan and Brazilian real.
0: Mm-hmm
1: so and skipping it,
0: the skipping the dollar US dollar interchange
1: skipping the the imperialist middleman yeah, yeah, yeah. so yeah. so uh, it's uh i mean and and we're just talking about life in america and, but in other regions of the world in the middle east for example when when we talk about the, the energy markets uh, you know Saudi Arabia Saudi Arabia which is a big oil exporter to china as well there have been discussions of uh, you know moving away from, from the US dollar, which have been setting off all sorts of alarm bells in, in, in Washington DC. And to the other point about uh, Venezuela joining the, the BRICS uh, alliance, I, I don't see it as a kind of an imminent scenario, but we should understand uh, what it means. You know, it's not, it's, it's uh, of course, a very uh, important diplomatic um, setup, diplomatic forum, uh, as if we understand it as a counterweight to, to the, the G seven, you know, yeah, U uh, exactly. S. and Europe dominated, but perhaps the most significant asset, which is very attractive to countries like Venezuela, is that the BRICS are going to have their own development bank, and we were just talking about the sorry, the delicate state of the Venezuelan economy, and having access to financial, uh, you know, credit mechanisms outside of so uh, let's say uh, U.S.-dominated financial system, and not not even the IMF. I mean, we're talking about the the the, the, the Inter-American Development Bank, and and, and stuff yeah. like that. All of that is very heavily under the influence of, of Washington. So having a different source of financing that will allow again the government to plan uh, a bit longer term, because right now it's kind of in a permanent emergency mode. You know, how how do we pay next month's wages? How do we get this next cargo exported? So having some breathing room to again uh, you know address uh, significant infrastructure issues, uh, you know plan plan more in the long term, you know, restart credit for uh, agricultural producers, stuff like that that that's the the allure of of joining the the bricks you know beyond giving away to this kind of um, multipolarity effort.
0: it's a, it's a strong. Uh, it's a strong message to the quote-unquote international community, the West, that there's so many countries now, and particularly in the global South, that are interested in joining BRICS and publicly saying that in the international press. And that alone is creating a narrative, you know, a really strong one. And so now to have Maduro mention the same earlier in the week, it's like, well, there's it's one more you know
1: yeah uh, not 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 only did he mention it but he was also i mean lula was you know expressed his favorable opinion in that regard yeah. and i think it goes to show uh, uh kind of a clash between development uh, models i mean when, we, when mm-hmm. we talk about when we talk about the u.s influence in the world and and the alternatives and of course the biggest one is, is the chinese one i mean china has uh investments and cooperation agreements all around the world i'm not going to romanticize what Chinese investment means. Of course, it also has its issues, but it does not cause the kind of political strain and the political blackmail that we, are, we usually associate with uh, you know, the IMF and, and the World Bank when, when we talk about countries in the Global South, in Latin America or in, or, or in Africa. So in, in that regard, it's, it shouldn't really be a surprise that countries want to look for the most favorable uh, you know development cooperation, what have you trade mechanisms that they can access. and it's clear that this will be uh, outside the sphere of influence of of the US and to a lesser extent, the European Union. What perhaps this tells us on a more global context is that uh, there's a, a a real reduction of the projection of US power uh, worldwide. So the US, yeah. there, there are plenty of examples, I mean, we shouldn't really go into Afghanistan and all that, but plenty of examples that show that this era of uh, unipolarity, the end of history, all of that, that came after the fall of the Berlin Wall, this era is, is over. So the US cannot uh, just impose its will and you know change government, uh, as it pleases so there are now other actors around the world which might not be as powerful to directly challenge the U.S. by themselves but they are powerful enough to understand that they can create alternative uh, development and trading and diplomatic routes that you know uh, inevitably will cha- will challenge uh, washington's hegemony
0: well you know this is this is really um to me i think that that's key. And this is one of the things that's so uh, important, I think, as we watch this integration of Latin America and the Caribbean become more articulated and, and seeing it actually unfold. It's like, as each nation steps up and says, here's what we want. Here's the, you know, the national sovereignty. We want to protect the national, the natural resource sovereignty. We want to protect. We want our own economic model as, as each one stands up more stand up. I mean, there is, I mean, you can just see there, there really is this strength being created among, among the nations of Latin America and the Caribbean. I, I know, you know, we did a, an episode on the selac summit from September of 2021 um, here in Mexico City. And really, it really was on call that that, that that needed to happen. And you can just really see it, you know, every day unfolding, unfolding, unfolding. And, and it's very, um, it's encouraging. And of course, other people will say, well, yes, but this is also when the U.S. becomes the most aggressive when when Latin America starts um liberating itself. <laughs> and we saw that during Plan Condor and 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 in the 80s as well, specifically in Central America.
1: Yeah, I was just going to mention that it's not like the US is going to take this sitting down. So uh no. these countries and and we as uh, you know journalists, activists, we should be prepared prepared for for their reaction. And I mean we we see, for example, when it comes to sanctions that there's uh, not really a softening of uh, us sanctions rather the us is seeing how it can continue to use these uh, these weapons to kind of blackmail not just the uh, venezuelan government but also cuba and nicaragua and, and and even third parties so when we when we talk about the advantages of of, of integration i remember that uh, in late 2020 Venezuela struck an um, oil for food agreement with a couple of Mexican companies. Yeah. And then this, these were targeted uh, by Washington and this, uh, this swap deal had to be mixed. But as, as you create this kind of stronger uh, ecosystem for trading in, in the continent, I mean, one of the things that Maduro mentioned was uh, reactivating, there's the biggest source of Venezuelan energy, which is the Guri Dam, is very close to the border with Brazil. And it used to supply electricity to Roraima, which is the northernmost uh, state of Brazil in, uh, along the border yes. with Venezuela. And Maduro mentioned, you, you know, know, a lot I of people
0: mean, don't know that, that
1: Venezuela provides electricity to
0: that part of Brazil. <laughs> and actually,
1: the Venezuela's electricity struggles have also meant electricity struggles in this, this province of, yeah. of Brazil, which is, uh, you know, in the Amazon and uh, very hard to, to reach and to, to do significant infrastructure work. So Maduro said, you know, uh, if, if Brazil, Brazil, uh, you know, as either its government or private actors are ready to bring the investment, we can reactivate this uh, electricity supply to, to Roraima. So this is a case of, you know, Brazilian uh, companies are not forbidden of, uh, of doing this, right? That There's nothing mm-hmm. in, in the US treasury sanctions that says they cannot do it, but they might be reluctant to do it, if they fear they're going to be targeted by, by US, yeah, San- exactly. US sanctions. So if there's a, uh, let's say, an atmosphere- That's what we call that
0: of, over-compliance.
1: Over-compliance, of precisely. Right so so agents yeah. that are not necessarily doing anything wrong, quote-unquote, not, not that it would be wrong in the first place, but they fear, they fear being targeted. So if there's an atmosphere where, you know, here you have the Brazilian government directly backing these kinds of deals, they might be more inclined to do to do them and, and it will be to their benefit. I mean, it will be to the benefit of the region to have this, this kind of uh, electricity supply reactivated. So just, that's just one example of how things can change. So there might not be uh, a change to the sanctions policy, but there might be a change to, to the US's ability to enforce them. So whereas yeah. maybe three years ago when Venezuela was more isolated, the, the U.S. Treasury Department would be more confident to just go after some Brazilian companies. Now it might be more difficult. It might really hurt them in the long run to do so. It might actually push uh, the Brazil towards uh, the you know quote unquote the arms of, of China. So it, it changes the it little by little changes the the equation altogether and puts them. I mean. Uh, I hope people will forgive me for centering everything on Venezuela, but it, it well, was No, Venezuela. that's why you are here. <laughs> and, and 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 other target nations in a in a better position to kind of circumvent sanctions, get more room to maneuver, and hopefully uh, kickstart their own economies.
0: Well, it's all it's also encouraging, and I think um, maybe let's talk a little bit specifically about the Brazilian president's vision, Lula da Silva, back in office, his vision, I mean, he's basically re-embraced Brazil's role as an international player, and uh, and he's quite good at that, and he's rapidly uh, embraced that role again back in the presidency, and I, you know, and, and like you said earlier, he's immediately, well, early, not, not as immediate as Petro, but Pretty fast, recognized, uh, reestablished diplomatic relations with Venezuela, o- overtly recognized Maduro as the democratically elected president of Venezuela, and you know has just set the stage. This is the dialogue we're going to have. These are the countries that make up Latin America and the pre- and the Caribbean. These are their respected elected presidents, and that's that's a that's a big deal for for Brazil, for Brazil specifically being the largest country in the America, in, in South America, that that's a huge step for him. Not And it's not just a message to Latin America and the Caribbean, it's a message to the entire hemisphere and to, and to the rest of the world.
1: Yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, this article that I was mentioning by Guillaume Long in, in the beginning when I was talking about UNASUR, he made it very clear that, uh, you know, regional integration efforts historically have been driven by Brazil and it's not it's not it's not coincidence I mean this is the largest economy the largest country in, in the region so it makes it makes perfect sense and as you were saying it's actually very encouraging to see Lula uh, embrace embrace that role and actually waste no time I mean he just got into
0: office
1: there are always these uh, these arguments that you know we shouldn't pick too many fights at once but he has decided you know uh, life's too short he, he knew, I mean, he was very aware of what happened in just a few years between, you know, not, not him leaving office, but the coup against Dilma, just the damage that the single term of someone like Bolsonaro can do. So there's no time to waste. And so that, that's that's why he says, you know, 120 days, let's get this done, let's get this moving, and let's make sure that this is not so uh, delicate, so not so vulnerable to the political mm-hmm. whims of whoever, whoever is in office and not just Latin America. I mean, we're not, we don't, we don't have time to discuss this, but also when it comes to, to Ukraine, and this has really riled up us officials that Lula is not just echoing the, the us line. And it's, it's funny to, to those of us on the outside, how he just says the most perfectly reasonable things, you know, uh, you know. Russia was responding to an actual threat on its doorstep and US officials just go crazy you know how dare someone say that and, and the same thing here, there was this, this sentence that he said when he was doing the joint press with Maduro that was picked up by, by the media and then also by this, let's say opportunist presence, uh, Uruguay and Chile as well, he said that there was a, a narrative created that Venezuela was somehow an authoritarian and mm-hmm. anti-democratic State. And I mean, of course, it's a narrative. It's completely absurd. There's no way you can challenge the legitimacy of the 2018 presidential election. And so it was indeed a narrative created by Washington and then echoed by these very subservient media outlets that served to justify, on one hand, these uh, murderous economic sanctions, and on the other, this now extinct uh, circus called uh, interim government. So uh, it's like saying reasonable things has become has become an issue. So to to wrap up, uh, it has really been a welcome sight. I I was, uh, let's say, one of the pessimists uh, when it came to Lula and 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 other progressive uh, governments in the region, Uh, let me explain why. Because they are are coming back to power in a more delicate, uh, let's say, global economic context than when, let's say, the the first progressive wave came in the 2000s. So the big question is, were the lessons of the past learned. Of course, I mean, this, this region was targeted by uh, attacks from the US all the time, but there were also you know, their own mistakes that need to be things that need, things that need to be done differently this time around. So the early signs, both from Petro and now especially from Lula are that the lessons have indeed been learned. You know, I was saying <laughs> no, no time to waste. And both of them and Lula to a greater extent because of Brazil's projection, have been very assertive in the, in the international sphere.
0: They have. And, you know, it's really encouraging because sitting here in Mexico City, we, well, a lot of us really love the message that the Mexican president is sending um, to Latin America and the Caribbean. But it's also going to be really important that he have others uh, standing beside him and others to carry the baton. I mean, they, we, we have elections here in Mexico next year and, uh, you know, for the Constitution. President can only serve for one six-year term, so there's going to need to be more voices, and it, and that seems to be happening. And like we were saying earlier, you know, as each country stands up and asserts itself more, and everybody is becomes you know one becomes more unified. And it's really um, this desire to create a block, and specifically an economic block with a sovereign currency, is really uh, encouraging really, really encouraging. And I think it's also important, as you said earlier, that there is a tendency to say among the diversity of leaders in Latin America and the Caribbean that the domestic affairs are to each country, its, its elected government and its citizens. And everybody has to kind of step out of that and work together on the on the external, on the foreign policy, the trade and the economic issues. And that's I mean, that's I don't think I've ever seen that in my lifetime in the in the region.
1: It's it's yes. really exciting. Indeed, I mean I think in the end they are not separate issues when we're talking about, you know, for example, the economic the economic aspect. Because if a country is just by itself, it will trade in, let's say, very unfavorable conditions. Uh, with a, you know, a partner like the United States or the European Union or, or even China. If if there's uh, a broader integration that can, for example, uh, relieve the need to get, uh, I don't know, inputs from the US when you can get them from Brazil and they are much cheaper, it will gradually reduce their dependence. And if it reduces their dependence, it means that they can negotiate in in, in stronger yeah. conditions. And, and to your point, we, we should actually say that... Uh, Amlo was actually the first one, or the first uh, major player, who challenged the the isolation against Venezuela. Yeah. So there was there was this uh, gradual re-election of uh, leftist, progressive leaders in in Latin America. We saw Amlo in Mexico, and then Alberto Fernandez in, in in Argentina. But Amlo, who was actually you know the closest one, you know so close so so far from God and so close to the United States, right? That's, yeah. Uh, <laughs> So yeah, you know he, he he I mean, he feels the the, the breath on, on, on the back of his neck, and he was the one who actually took this this stance and said, you know, it makes no sense. Uh, we cannot just be picking uh, hand picking uh, interim leaders like that. And and he invited Maduro to this summit. He was actually the one who uh, gave uh, you know like an electric shock to bring selac back to life. It, it had yeah. it had it hadn't gathered for a number of years, even before, before the four years. Yeah. So, to to his credit, he I mean his his vision of uh, of integration is perhaps a bit more conservative than than Brazil's. Uh, when we talk about regional currency and and all of that, he hasn't sounded as sold on the idea of of course he knows I mean he had the NAFTA deal he knows the importance of you know finding uh, trade mechanisms that do not subjugate countries like his. But uh, to his credit, he has also been one of the major actors in challenging this uh, U.S hegemony which seemed uh, you know unchallenged in the continent for for such a long time
0: yeah know yeah, he's been he's been very overt about it and and uh, was really really wonderful when the uh, when he reconvened Salak and after it was four years I think Ricardo a four-year yeah, pause yes. they refer to it um and it was after he gave that really fantastic um, speech in July of 2021 on the 238th anniversary of Simón Bolívar's birth, and pretty much laid it all out. <laughs> he did a beautiful, you know, uh, talk about Simón Bolívar, uh, the man, the history, the vision for the Americas, and it and it just segued beautifully into the current uh, need to rebuild the OAS and or get rid of it and the, the full integration of the americas and and he was very overt in having uh, in in inviting maduro to attend as the elected president of venezuela he was very very clear about that when the invitations were extended and diaz panel of cuba and inviting nicaragua and uh, and just showing that full full integration of elected governments in the hemisphere it was really really clear and actual um,
1: governments not just yeah, governments.
0: yeah. <laughs> the governments that the that the people uh elected and not the governments appointed by the United States so so it was really you know pretty exciting and and just to continue watching it all unfold and now with Brazil being so so visible and vocal in the hemisphere and around and around the world it's really really significant what's Continuing to unfold and grow. So, regarding Monday's meeting, is there anything that that we've left out that we should share with the audience? That's
1: no, I think we pretty much covered it. Perhaps just a final a final point that both presidents made. You know, Maduro, of course, always talks about you know sanctions, and some sometimes it feels like uh, no no one wants to talk about sanctions, and that means that they've gone away. They they haven't. Yeah. They're still there, and and they're still hampering everything that's related to Venezuela and its day-to-day life I mean there's really no aspect of life here that's not hurt by, by sanctions and, and Lula was also uh, very critical in saying that you know you, you cannot just uh, impose uh, economic sanctions on the country because you don't like its leader that's not, that's not really how it works and actually to give perhaps uh, undeserved props to, to Gabriel Boric maybe it's the first and only time it will happen on this podcast so Boric had these very these very opportunistic comments about you know it's not it's not a narrative the human rights issues are real which is not what Lula said at all he just took it out of context yeah. to, to score some cheap political points but to his credit he said that uh, it's a welcome sight for Maduro to take part in these multilateral orga- uh, organizations and to discuss these things uh, directly with him he talked about you know the border and the migration issue and he also said uh, you know sanctions have to be lifted without any yeah. any any preconditions so i said I, I was telling someone that you know boric actually read the room and realized that he needed to say something a, a bit more along along those lines so yeah, and, he uh, did. and he did we'll see if yeah. he changes tune <laughs> next <laughs> time around but for now i think it was you know overall uh, for for knowing who he is it was yeah. positive
0: so well, more positive news for Venezuela. So hopefully we'll just keep, you know, getting stronger and stronger and more and more support and more throughout the hemisphere and, and the rest of the world. And the meeting Monday was really, really encouraging, you know, for many of us outside of Brazil and Venezuela to see. It was really a, a very encouraging. Um, we were happy to, to to hear about the invitation extended to Brazil. Uh, extended from Brazil to Venezuela, and, and then to see it actually become a reality. It was a really, really significant news event for the hemisphere. So so thank you, Ricardo. Is there anything that we should say in closing? I'm just so happy yeah, to have uh, had your time just, today uh, <laughs> and, and to uh, work with yeah. you. <laughs> it, was,
1: it, it was my pleasure. I'll I'll actually take the opportunity to plug in some some Venezuela analysis content. Do please. Uh, we actually have a we have a, a sanctions booklet in the works. So we have produced a lot of content on on sanctions, their consequences, how they work, the media coverage around them, and also perhaps what's most uh dear to us is, you know, the efforts by grassroots the popular organizations to, you know, Fight back, you know, to take matters into their own hands and to construct socialism from the ground up. So it will be a booklet that we'll hope will be available in a month or two that will have lots of great content on, on sanctions that we hope will be useful for for solidarity movements. And also, uh, if we're talking about the regional integration, we have an infographic called Bolivarianism Against Monroism. I think someone stole our name for this campaign. Uh, and I would encourage people, people to, to, we actually need to update because we have the, the member countries and we need to add Brazil and Argentina. So that's uh, one of several infographics we have been producing in, in recent times. We have some great graphic designers working with us. So not just that, we also have infographics on, on the economy, on, on sanctions, on, on the Venezuelan communes. So that's something that we also encourage. I think it's a, a useful way to have kind of a, a neat and compact content, content that can be easily spread. Uh, on social media and and and, and other. So other where channels. can we find those infographics? Uh, there on if you go to our website and you look at the section that's called images, you you'll see the okay. list of, of infographics okay. there. The latest one was on on Citgo, which is oh. uh, a, a very important uh, <laughs> asset that's uh, actually facing some very important threats right now, and and this infographic actually uh, retells the story of how a a deadly combination of sanctions and collusion from the Venezuelan opposition has led to to this imminent imminent danger.
0: So I will, for the audience, um, in the program notes are uh, social social media links for Ricardo and for Venezuela analysis and the Venezuela analysis website so that you can go uh, straight there and look under images for these infographics. And then also I've included in the program notes uh, the article on, on this meeting earlier this week between Venezuela and Brazil. Uh, the article was actually written by um, Jose Luis Granados who is uh, uh, and, uh, a reporter for Venezuela analysis and, and Ricardo is an editor, so in Caracas. So um, very happy to have you with us this evening and Ricardo will have to have you come back when your sanctions booklet is published. And, and Definitely, I, I would that. be delighted. Okay, that would that would be fabulous. So let's stay in touch about that, and um, and we can uh, promote the booklet and and do uh, an educational uh, broadcast as well. Would be really great. So, so thank you again for the audience. You should just know Absolutely. that Ricardo was a personal again. friend, and I have not worked with him since we last saw each other in Venezuela. So <laughs> it was really, really, uh, really a pleasure. Um, that you could join us for this episode Ricardo and I and I hope to see you in Venezuela soon so
1: yeah pleasure was all mine great to see you Terry
0: uh, let me just remind the audience that you've been watching What the F is going on in Latin America and the Caribbean we broadcast on YouTube live every Thursday seven thirty p.m eastern you can find us on the following YouTube channels the Convo Couch, Code Pink and Popular Resistance post-broadcast recordings can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. So thank you everyone. And we will see you next week.